Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. America feels hopelessly divided right now. Amen? It's blue versus red, conservative versus liberal, rural versus urban, dogs versus cats, Michigan versus Michigan State. We can divide up in all sorts of different ways. And what we want, what we need more than anything else is for our Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to come in and to make everything all right, to heal all of these divisions to unite us and to bring us together and to make us whole. What we need is a word from the Lord to say, hey, it's all going to be okay. And what we get from the Lord is what he says today. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? Yes, Lord, you are the Prince of Peace after all. No, I tell you, but rather Division. What do we make of that? We want Jesus to come meek and mild, bringing his peace on the earth. And instead he says, no, I come bringing division. Now understand, our Lord, he does bring peace. But it is a divisive peace. If that sounds paradoxical, it should Because the peace that our Lord brings, 100%, is also 100% at the same time divisive. And for us as Christians, we are called to live into that paradox, to live into that tension of the divisive peace of our Lord. It's easy to fall off on one side only to emphasize the peaceableness of the Savior. Or, on the other hand, just to focus on the divisiveness and the ways that this message sets us apart. But for you and me, for those of us who are baptized into Christ, we're called to embrace that tension, to live with it, to at once proclaim the peace and the division together. Does that sound difficult? It is. And I'm not going to pretend this morning to answer all the questions or to send you out knowing exactly how to navigate that tension. But I do want to unpack it a little bit, to unpack that paradox this morning so that as the baptized, you and I, as the church, might live more faithfully into this divisive peace of our Savior. But let's kind of take each side in turn. So as I say, on the one hand, there are those who might be tempted only to emphasize and to focus on the peace of Christ, how he is the Prince of Peace. And this is an understandable temptation to fall into. Uh, When you read the scriptures, even if we were just to stay with the Gospel of Luke, you see peace again and again and again. Think Think of Christmas night at the nativity of our Lord. The angels go out and they're proclaiming, they're singing to the shepherds. And what is their song? Glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace. Peace. And not long after that, when the infant Jesus is brought to the temple, he's brought to Simeon, and Simeon says, Lord, now you can let your servant go in peace. Peace, peace, peace. And think of also when our Lord rises from the dead. The very first word that Jesus says to the disciples is what? Peace, 
peace be with you. Peace is the watchword of the kingdom. It follows in our Lord's train everywhere he goes. He comes bearing and bringing the peace of the Father for you and for me. It would be natural for us only and ever to emphasize this peaceableness of the Savior because he is the Prince of Peace. But if you only do that, a problem does arise. There's a TV show that started a few years ago called The Good Place. Any of you ever see The Good Place? On NBC, uh, for those of you who attended lectures this past week, you might have seen a, a clip from it. The good place is about the afterlife. The good place is kind of their euphemism for heaven, and it's the opposite, of course, of the bad place. And according to this show, good people go to the good place, bad people go to the bad place. It's horrible theology for a Lutheran pastor. I'm just like, Ugh. But there's something instructive about it, too. In the first episode, the main character, she has died and gone to, ostensibly, the good place. She finds herself in like a, a lobby, like a hotel lobby or something. And on the wall, it says this, everything is fine. Everything is fine. Well, isn't that sweet? Of course, she's in the good place. Why wouldn't everything be fine? But there's a catch. As it turns out, she's not in the good place at all. She's actually in the bad place, which wants very much to stress that for all of those who are in the bad place, everything is fine. It's just like when you're on the plane and they tell you in the extremely unlikely event of this plane going down and the mask falls and everyone is screaming for their lives, stay calm. <laughs> everything is fine. Now, why do I mention that? Because in our world today, everything is not fine. We live in a world that is broken and racked with sin. And it's not just out there, it's in you and me too. And only to proclaim the peace of Christ, only to say everything is fine, is to overlook and to neglect this fundamental fact that if we don't recognize our sickness, we're never going to turn to the great physician. It's the modus operandi of false prophets, both ancient and modern, to say all is well. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. We heard it from the prophet Jeremiah in our Old Testament reading today. Those false prophets proclaim the dreams of their own hearts, and they say, all will be well with you. Or as it says earlier in Jeremiah, they heal the wound of my people lightly. They're putting band-aids on broken bones. See, the peace that Christ brings is a peace that goes much more deeper than that. I'd love to be able to stand up here and tell you that all is going to be well, everything is going to be fine in our world today, but the reality is it may not be. But you and I have a peace that surpasses all understanding in Christ. The peace that we have is not just some easy breezy peace of saying all is well. Instead, it is the blood-bought peace of Jesus Christ. It is a peace that the world cannot give, that comes only through death and resurrection. It is a peace that is yours through our Lord Jesus' mission and ministry that you are joined to through holy baptism. But we can't just jump to Easter without having Good Friday. And we can't get to the peace of Christ without recognizing that message of our Lord that continues to be divisive. That message that you and I and all the world still needs to repent each and every day. So as I say, 
if we only emphasize the peace, but lose sight of that divisive aspect of the cross, of sin, of repentance, then we've done a disservice to the message of the gospel and the ministry of our Savior. You are called to live into that tension, that paradoxical tension of our Lord's divisive peace. But if on the one hand, there's some who are tempted only to emphasize and to focus on the peace and to try and whitewash the problems of our world, there's also on the other side this temptation just to focus on the division and the divisiveness. To, to so emphasize our set-apartness as Christians and as the church that you don't give due justice to the peace of Christ. That true peace that has come through his death and his resurrection. And once again, there's something to be said for this. Because Jesus, when he comes and he calls his disciples, he doesn't call you and me to a half-hearted discipleship. You think of the, in the book of Revelation when Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea. What does he say about those lukewarm Christians? He says he wants to do what? To spit them out of his mouth. Christ has not come for half-hearted disciples. He comes to claim all of you, to call us to be a peculiar people, a people set apart, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You are right to want to devote yourself fully to Christ, to be sold out for the Savior. But once again here, this can miss something vital in the message. You remember that time? There was a time when the disciples had gone out and they were being fully devoted and zealous to the Lord, and they went through Samaria. They went through the, the, town, the area of Samaria, and when they did, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God was not well-received. It wasn't eagerly embraced. And so the disciples are kind of bummed. They're a little bit angry by this. And they come back to the Savior and they say to him, Oh, Lord, they didn't want to have anything to do with the message. Should we call down fire upon them? <laughs> Not a few pastors have felt like that once in a while. And there's part of you, especially in light of the, the gospel reading that we heard this morning, to expect Jesus to say, yes, let's do it. If they're not going to hear and to receive the message, let's bring down fire on those sinners. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he does. Instead, he rebukes the disciples. Why? Didn't he say he came to cast fire on the earth? Didn't he say that he came bringing division? Yes. But understand there's a distinction to be made here. It's not that he came in order to bring division, but that he recognizes that it is the inevitable, unhappy result of his ministry. You see the distinction? His goal is not to divide and conquer. His goal is to unite and heal. But he recognizes that through this message of death and resurrection, through this message of dying to yourself and committing yourself to Christ, that is going to be divisive. But that's not his ultimate goal. But even more profoundly than that, what the disciples miss, what they overlook, what they can't even realize yet, is that when Jesus comes, comes to cast fire on the earth, that fire is not on all of the infidels, that fire is on himself. Jesus came in order to absorb, to be immolated by the fire's wrath for you and for me. See, For all of our lack of peaceableness, 
for all of the ways that you and I fail to love our neighbor and to desire only their hurt. Christ came to take all of that unto himself. He was baptized, so to speak, into the grave and raised to life to forgive you and me, to extinguish those flames of sin, sin that are kindled in each and every one of our hearts, and instead to heal you and to make you whole. We are called to be a people set apart, yes, but not to delight in the division of our world. Think of our, our Savior when he looks out over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that city that he came for, those people that he came to save, but that in stubborn rebellion refused to receive the good news. And he weeps. He does not delight in their brokenness. He does not celebrate their sin. He weeps. And so, for you and me, as we embrace this divisive peace of our Savior, we weep over our world. We stand between heaven and earth and pray for our world. When I think about what that looks like for you and me, what it's like for us to, to lean into, to live into that tension of the divisive peace of our Savior, I think of another time in history, in a place far from here, that was similarly racked with division and discord. It was the Roman Empire in the 4th century, in the 300s, and the empire was divided over the question of the divinity of Jesus Christ. There were many who, who did not believe that Christ was God in the flesh, but that he was merely one of God's creations. His greatest creation, yes, but he was not God in the flesh. And there were others who professed, no, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God among us, the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. The empire was deeply divided. And there was a guy in this time, a leader in the church by the name of Athanasius. You've heard that name Athanasius before. We say his very, very long creed on Trinity Sunday, right? Well, Athanasius, he was somebody who held unswervingly to the truth of the gospel, to the message of the scriptures, and he would not back down. In fact, he earned this nickname. It's so cool. His nickname was Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. How cool does that sound, right? Athanasius was somebody who would not relent from this message, who held fast to it unswervingly and steadfastly. He was contramundum against the world. And so you would think, well, he's just another one of those divisive figures. He's not somebody who embraces the, the peace of Christ. And in fact, Athanasius would be exiled, not once, not twice, but five times. Five times he was kicked out of his home, sent to another land, hounded, hounded for his proclamation of the message of Christ and who he is. You think if ever there was a divisive figure, it's Athanasius. Well, let me ask you this. How do you get exiled five times? <laughs> you must be a real glutton for punishment, right? Because that means that after each time that Athanasius was kicked out of his home, he came back again. And kicked out again. And he came back back again for 17 years of his life, for a quarter of his life. He lived in dishonor and in disrepute, but that did not keep him away. He kept coming back. 
Why? Because his heart was gripped with love for his broken, fallen neighbors. Because he was not content simply to leave that fractured empire and say, oh, I'll just shake the dust off my feet and let them go to H-E double hockey sticks. He kept coming back because he knew that the only place to find true healing was in the message of the gospel of a Christ who is crucified and risen to bring a peace that the world knows not for every single person. Friends, that's you and me. See, We bear that same calling. We bear that divisive peace to the world, neither tamping down the divisive messages of it nor neglecting the true and lasting peace that Christ has brought. No, we live in that tension between heaven and earth, praying ever for our world, for the peace of the whole world, and for the unity of all. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to sing.